Hello, welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga. My name is Alex Hochley. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. George Hoar and Philip Cunliffe are in the UK. Hello. You can hey. say hello. Yeah. Hey. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, so today we are going to be talking about class, or I should say class. I, I, you guys have to do that. I can't just do the do Don't the do the British like voice. Don't pretend you're not British. Don't pretend you're not British. <laughs> I'm I'm very much not British. A little a little old thing called class. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> It's uh, like what a Dickens, Dickensian street urchin, George. Yeah, which is exactly yeah. what you look like, but with less soot. It's true, actually, and probably a bit more well-fed than a Dickensian street <laughs> urchin, if I may say. So. Less, uh, I get third helpings of gruel. <laughs> you do a bit better than gruel. You're a member of the bourgeoisie now. Anyway, uh, um, we What are we talking about today? <laughs> why, don't, why don't you tell? Why don't you tell us? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So we're going to be talking with Ben Tippett about his book, uh, Split, Class Divides Uncovered, which is out now on Pluto. Um, it's part of their Outspoken series, which also has some titles on sex education, feminism and masculinity. And Ben is an educator, activist and writer um, who is doing a PhD at Greenwich on wealth inequality. Um, but yeah, I guess before we call call Ben up, I think it's yeah. I mean, f- for me, it class obviously perhaps the most important political concept it really feels like in the past few years it's been repoliticized from the from the right maybe as well as the left so definitely an important thing to to discuss head on and probably to have a, a number of more discussions as well um after this one very good let's uh let's call up ben so yeah, thanks very much for for joining us ben um really glad to have you with us maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to write this book on class, because um, maybe five years ago, the the idea of class, it wasn't perhaps the most the, the trendiest concept or the the idea that was the flavor of the month, let's put it that way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, stuff seems to have changed a lot in the last five weeks, let alone the last five years. But um, before, you know, all this COVID stuff hit um, and, you know, the book came out uh just as as the crisis hit so i started writing it about a year before and um the book itself so is is connected to this uh series that's done by pluto press called outspoken series uh the series is 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 about trying to write about political topics in a way that's accessible inclusive engaging and particularly directed at a young audience and so uh, the actual book came out of me running workshops uh, on class and inequality in some London schools. And I found like when I spoke to some of the students, they had lots of different ways of actually thinking about class and economic inequality. But I think particularly class was uh, something that really just came back as, you know, so many different perspectives and what it meant. You know, some students just thought class was about your tastes and preferences. You know, it was about your accent mm. or what kind of uh, films you like to watch and what kind of food you ate. Um, other people kind of thought class is about a social hierarchy, like a really rigid social hierarchy of a, an upper class and middle class and a lower class. And this hierarchy determines your esteem and your respect from society. And actually, because a lot of the schools in which we were running these workshops were um, like working class communities, people didn't really want to associate with being working class because it was considered to be mm. at the bottom of this hierarchy. So that was definitely a perspective. Um, so the how, other kind of how, 
how old yeah. were these with these students sorry just to to give i guess listeners a bit of a flavor of the sort of discussions you might have been having yeah sure they were uh so this is a level students which is um 16 to 18 year olds uh so, and cool. they, and actually it was a, a mix of different ethnicities um you know, uh, some students who are predominantly from Bangladeshi communities, uh, from some British black students and also white students as well. Um, so, yeah, there was just like lots of these different theories of class coming uh, coming from these workshops. And, that, and I think one of the few things in a way that wasn't such uh, a prevalent part of their discussion was the idea of capital and labor and class being about mm. your kind of ownership in the economy and actually in a way when i tried to mention these marxist ideas people saw it as ideological and they didn't really you know they, maybe their eyes glossed over and they didn't necessarily think it was that relevant which mm. is interesting because actually uh, you know a lot of the stories that they were saying about the way in which they're exploited at work or the fact that they live in overcrowded, expensive housing, or that maybe the state wasn't an institution that really uh, represented them or wasn't for people like them. You know, these, mm. these I think, are all very much part of a Marxist analysis. Um, mm. And I think that that just made me think at wider society, something similar is happening. I mean, it's not just, it's mm. not just a, 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 in this classroom. It was also when I was speaking to my friends about this, people outside of the left um, and also within the media. So I just wanted to, the book is really an attempt to accessibly tell the story of economic inequality using mm. this, this Marxist lens. Yeah. So, yeah, I think this maybe question which follows on quite nicely from that is the, I, you sort of mentioned some of the arguments they were having outside of the classroom. What, how did they influence the, I guess, the, the desire to write the book and the, I guess, basically what, who are you arguing against to to make you think this this perspective needs to be to be developed? I think it's the fact that when you look at the world, and because I come from an economics background, um, just in the statistics you see class everywhere. You know, class is such a defining feature of the way in which our society is organised. But then when you you know, I, I wouldn't really say I, would, I was writing the book against my friends or. Um, you know, it, it was maybe more as a way of trying to tell a story using modern day kind of cultural references, uh, like films, the kind of stuff that people watch mm. and consume, um, to try and bring a Marxist analysis that maybe people felt was a little bit outdated. So really, the book mm. is aimed at that. People not necessarily, who, you know, not not people who are hugely familiar with the discourse. Like, I'd like you, you know, people to give this book to their I don't know, their cousins or whatever, who maybe aren't at all interested in the left, but might be, you know, might be interested in the idea of economic inequality and want to understand why there is such inequality today. Yeah. Mm. No, I, I guess some of the things that you said definitely resonated with me, having taught sociology to some, to some students, uh, A-level students, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, that, yeah, the 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 resistance to that, to that, to any of those kind of terms which seem ideological, which seem over theoretical which i think is quite understandable um in terms of the way the world presents itself to you um at that age but maybe to to return to the to the sort of discussion around the book what were you what were you hoping to achieve i guess what what's the what what's the goal of of this of making this sort of intervention i think that yeah the goal is 
I mean, any kind of Marxist analysis of class, I guess, is this idea that class isn't just something that it is inevitable or natural. Um, it's something that is formed by social relations and social power. Well, it is a form of social relation and it can change, you know, if people change their behavior and organize in certain ways. So I think the the end goal for me would be for people to read this book and, you know, at the end of it, think, actually there's stuff that we can do to to combat the extreme inequality that we have today such and there's stuff i can do in my own life like join a union um organize you know within the collective movements that are happening at the moment so i guess for me it would be i i want to try and encourage maybe people who are feeling politically apathetic to to actually you know engage in the political process but the the wider political Mm. process not just the party one yeah for sure Mm. that's that's I think that was my my motivation for doing it. Yeah, so it's hard to know what your motivation for doing mm. a book is before you, you well, know, you can, uh, you can when you get one. to the end of it. You know, <laughs> you can invent one afterwards uh, retrospectively. Mm. Um, yeah, but yeah, thanks. So just so moving on to the argument of the book um, itself. On the front cover, you have this picture of two teacups. One which is a standard white mug which may or may not have some frothy coffee in it. And the other is a more kind of bone china looking affair with a saucer and a spoon. And that spoon may or may not be silver. You can't tell from the the picture. Um, and in the book, you talk about tea, not just as a cultural signifier of class, but also as the first mass consumer good in Britain. Um, so yeah, why is tea such a good cipher for talking about class in Britain today? Yeah, I think, you know, what we drink in the UK um, is long been seen as a symbol of class in our ever-shifting society. Uh, and as the as you say, like on the front cover of the book, there's this symbol of the kind of humble builder's cup of tea and the, the opposite being, you know, the kind of thing that might be served at, at high tea at the Ritz or something. And I think that that image of a decadent bourgeois elite versus the masses is is an image of class that we have which i guess is why they put it on the book um but in a way i think actually one of the there's actually maybe a more newer a more relevant cultural narrative around the drinks that we you know the hot beverages that we have in class because now if we say okay who are considered to be the out of touch elite i don't i wouldn't say it's necessarily the people that go to the ritz because actually most of those people are probably tourists with mm. i don't know like vouchers from lastminute.com or something um actually groupons yeah yeah groupons or something um it's not no longer this kind of symbol i guess of this bourgeois elite um but in a way one of the, the one of the kind of more powerful symbols i think of who are considered the elite has been uh this kind of frothy cappuccino drinking um avocado eating uh, group, you know, and the, the idea is that in a way, the real class war is between these cappuccino sipping metropolitan elite types versus a, a like builders, traditional industrial working class. And actually, in the UK, this clash came to a head a little bit in 2017, when the Conservatives, uh, the Conservative Party introduced the idea of this barista visa. I don't know if you guys remember mm-hmm. this after after Brexit. Uh, it was like an exemption from immigration controls for people who worked in in uh, cafes, you know, people who were baristas. And the Labour MP Andy Burnham, who was the mayor of Manchester at the time, intervened on Twitter and said, you know, oh, the only reason why they're doing this is because they want their posh coffee. Mm. And so, like, 
I, you know, there, it, this, this divide, I think has been, um, th- there's these, this kind of maybe is more of the cultural divide today. Um, yeah. But I think like, uh, you know, why, why does this in a way, like, does this matter? Is this just like, does, do, you know, it does this actually influence politics? I kind of think in a way it, it, there's an interesting question where it says, if you kind of pick somebody from the street and maybe you said, I mean, there's, I've got no research to back this up to be honest, this is just a pure speculation. But if you pick somebody from the street and you said, how would you define somebody's class in the UK? I think in a way they might be as likely to say something about, you know, the coffee that they drink rather than maybe the means how, you know, mm-hmm. whether they own the means of production or something or this kind of uh, statement. So, ben, I want consumption it... behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, ben, I... go on. Ben, Alex here. Sorry. Um, I wanted to actually ask a little bit more about this notion because Britain seems so full of class signifiers, often uh, without much content backing them up or, you know, being really just legacies of the past. I was struck by this because when I was 18, I moved to the UK and I was amazed by how many little hints and nods there were about class based on utterly kind of superficial or transient little kind of consumer goods, especially about food, especially about food and drink. Yeah. So, you know, tea is tea is, is appropriate, but it's a bit like this, this thing that even middle class people would do, even relatively well off middle class people would do where they would kind of sneer or laugh about some kind of consumption like, oh, that's a very posh thing to do or whatever, which to me was completely alien having grown up in continental Europe. Like, what is what is this all about? So, I mean, do you think that, this actually does in some way say something about class today or is britain perhaps too obsessed with these um with these kind of class signifiers and that perhaps there there isn't that much content behind them yeah i mean i think with any kind of signifier there's always a little element of truth yeah like there is probably some kind of conspicuous consumption thing going on like a kind of veblian argument um but generally speaking, it's like taking maybe a tiny little bit of truth to blow it up into this big thing that ends up just being, I think, a massive distraction from where power really lies. You know, like and and that and I think there's there's two ways in which it's a distraction. On the one hand, it when you start to just say, oh, these are the real class divides between the metropolitan, you know, these coffee cappuccino sim- sipping metropolitan elite versus builders, cup of coffee uh, builder tea people you know you're actually dividing a lot of people uh who have you're dividing people sorry you have actually a very lot in sorry you're dividing people who have a lot in common you know precarious workers immigrants ex-industrial miners workers and the it's, it's clearly a, a symbol of dividing people who might otherwise see themselves as a collective working class movement uh, but more than this, I think, actually, it's not just about divide, dividing people. It also helps the actual elite present themselves as working class. And because it's just easy to be like, oh, I'm a, you know, I drink tea or whatever, or I yeah. eat at the local chippy or something, and therefore I'm or, working class. And I think, uh, oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, or, or I'm an Aston Villa fan or whatever mm. team it is that uh, <laughs> the member of the elite supposed which to is a total Tory, Which is a total Tory club. So, you know, I, I think he failed yeah. on that one, David Cameron. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. he couldn't actually we, say who it was, could he, David Cameron? Uh, when he, or he changed it. confused, yeah, yeah. Because um, yeah, Boris Johnson had this, I think, like, really did this, like, 
uh, in the most kind of media savvy way in 2018, where it was during the middle of the scandal that he was uh, after he'd called uh, women who wear the burqa and com- had compared them to letterboxes. And there were like lots of reporters outside of his house. And he just came out with a tray of cups of tea to give to the reporters uh, as a way of like distracting them from asking him a question and the media just became this kind of oh isn't he great he's you know giving them tea a humble man of the people you know and then look, look where that's got us in a way yeah i think the the, the particularly british obsession with uh, consumption as a stand-in for for class has led to many uh, people being branded men of the people or women of the people but mainly men of the people who are quite surprising um but maybe to to move on to one of the the points in the book that i found really interesting in the last chapter you draw together some of the themes that came out from interviews that you you had with with young people and listeners will possibly remember that we spoke previously in episode 98 to be precise with the american sociologist jennifer silver about her qualitative study of working class americans engagement with politics so she'd spoken with her interviewees in 2016 um, and i think it's probably fair enough to summarize jennifer's research as showing that there was a pretty high level of people feeling working class but there wasn't really a feeling that politics could be a way to address social problems or a way to address the problems of class which in turn were experiences individual so her respondents were quite markedly disengaged from politics on the on the whole. Um, so I guess I just wanted to ask you a little bit about what you found in your interviews, and particularly one of your respondents who says that they think class expired a long time ago. But essentially, that class was in full effect during the 80s and 90s, but that today nobody really considers themselves to be in a class. Um, could you tell us a bit more about this notion that you heard from maybe one or maybe more of your your interviewees that class is an outdated concept yeah sure i mean i think this is a really prevalent attitude across the the country as a whole you know this idea that class doesn't really matter anymore um and you know after students saying this to me i was thinking about why this might be the case and the theory i came up with it is um in a way you know there's that phrase that says uh you know, we'd say to student, to, to um, kids, like if they're pulling a funny face and you say like, uh, you know, don't, don't pull a funny face. Cause if the wind changes, your face would be stuck like that. Yeah. And I think in a way what's happened with class is something similar in a way, you know, the eighties and nineties or particularly the eighties in this country was a, a extreme period of tumultuous change uh, and class conflict. And really has started the dramatic decline in the power of the organized working class. So in 1985, you had uh, nearly half of the British workforce was in a trade union. And today it's less than about 23%. And so Mm -hmm. what, what you had in the 80s was a really dramatic change after obviously a very kind of public uh, period of class battles. Um, So like the 1984 minor strike, which was one of the biggest strikes in the history of the country and was a a huge turning point really for what happened. Um, And so I think in a way what's happened is because the power of the organized working class has declined means that we haven't really had class politics in such an explicit way on our TV screens, at least in a kind of Marxist sense. Um, Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why class is kind of seen as an outdated concept 
Um, because, you know, but it, I think the important thing to say is just because, uh, you know, the organized working class has declined its power doesn't mean the class politics has gone away. If, I, if anything, actually, mm. I, I think it's become more important uh, mm. because what you've seen is a huge redistribution of wealth and power along class lines to the richest people in our society. Um, and so, but, yeah. yeah, I just think it's quite striking that those two things could could have happened um happened together but i think phil had a had a question about um a more more contemporary question because i think we'll we'll come back to maybe the also the effect of of new labor and some political forces on this on this shift but phil to bring us to the present day yeah i mean i would have agreed with you ben i suppose up until very recently perhaps um I mean, I think uh, I would say the working class has come back onto the stage to a degree with Brexit um, and the fact that there was explicit um, discussion of the working class and and done in a way, I mean, nonetheless kind of overlaid with these racial categories. And then even more strikingly, though, and in particular in the last few weeks, has been this sudden crumbling away of the accepted hierarchy, I suppose, or the informal hierarchy of labor relations that have prevailed in this country for the last 30 years, with suddenly this boost to um, essential workers. And so suddenly all the people who are doing um, uh, frequently menial, dirty, difficult um, jobs at uh, difficult times of the day, delivery, service work, cleaning work, I mean, everybody knows who they are. Those who are deemed essential have suddenly received this moral boost um, I mean, you know, it's not uh, not boosting wages, uh, not an improved working conditions and the rest of it, but sudden a sudden appreciation and public prominence, which they have not had for many years. And so I was very struck by this. And I suppose my I was wondering what the notion of essential workers under the corona pandemic tells us about class and labor today. Yeah, for sure. I think the pandemic has really changed massively the way in which you understand the labor market. I think, I think, uh, was it James Meadway early on, uh, who was one of the chief economic advisors to uh, John McDonnell um, uh, in the Corbyn shadow cabinet? Um, he wasn't in the cabinet, but he was an advisor. I think early on, he said something like, you know, this is a crisis fundamentally in the labor market in a way that the financial crisis was fundamentally a crisis in the, in the, um, in the financial markets. And so I think you're right to say it's, it's, it's hugely changed. Or, or there's the potential there for it to hugely change our perceptions of class and work. Um, I think on your point specifically about essential work, you know, in, in the book, I repeat a, I guess like quite a, a well quoted um, hypothetical thought experiment uh, from, uh, I think, you know, it's another, it's in lots of other leftist books where it says something like this. It says, uh, imagine for a moment what would happen if all of the hedge fund managers in the city of London, for example, couldn't turn up to work one day. You know, what would the human impact be um, and what would the economic impact be? And, you know, while there's probably a case to be said that, um, you know, this this is going to have some kind of systemic crisis, whatever, maybe there'll be an impact. I think there's also a case to be said that actually the world might be a slightly better place. When if you then repeat the experiment and you say, well, what if all the care workers in the economy couldn't turn up to work for a month? Well, the human impact would be undeniably uh, devastating. And I think what what COVID has done, 
has is it has you know it's basically turned this thought experiment into reality and and what is the point of the thought experiment is to basically say that the amount that you're paid for your labor doesn't actually necessarily really have anything to do with how productive you are to society it's really about your power and within you know within the economy and this obviously is not just a class issue this is also a race and a gender issue and the way in which race and class relate to each other but uh, you know i i think re- maybe let's stick with this idea of care work because this is you know in the crisis is widely to be considered one of the most important jobs and i think on every single list across the world of who is considered to be an essential worker care work has made it um onto the list while i don't think any private equity manager uh managers or hedge fund managers have mm. um but but then you actually look at the conditions of care work in this country uh it's one of the most insecure and underappreciated low paid jobs in britain you know half of frontline care workers in this country are paid less than the real living wage you know which means mm. over half of them are working for poverty wages and i think there's something like five times more likely to be on a zero hour contract mm. so and and i think it's important to say is who are these care workers well they're massively disproportionately um black and minority ethnic mm. and they're also i think i can't remember what the actual status but i think it's almost in the region of 80% 90% uh women yeah and so, it, i think yeah. i think that that thought experiment is quite striking um and it definitely it, it reminds me of uh, i think it's Anne rand who has her her fantasy of all the capitalists going on strike and it bringing down society whereas in fact i think we would fare rather better than if all the care workers uh, wanted <laughs> to turn up to work um but yeah just maybe to move on to uh, another thing which you talk about in the book which again perhaps is a quite a, a, a particularly british preoccupation when we talk about class and that's education um mm. so another interviewee points to the education system as one of the key areas where the class structure is reproduced maybe not in those exact terms um but you could argue i think in in the british context at least in arguments about class and education the concepts are often pretty much fused together um so could you tell us a little uh, tell our listeners the majority of whom are not british um mm. a little bit about how class and education are tied together in in britain how does this how does this work yeah britain is a weird weird one because class and education ties so much with our private school system here um and i think for for i guess for listeners not from the uk you know the private system is kind of i guess in, you've got things like harry potter and stuff which have kind of mysticized it and sold it to a foreign audience uh, and it's maybe one of the ways in which one of our key institutions of class has been um exported to kind of audiences across the world so maybe you know think about the kind of hogwarts style public school these so not public school private school we call our private schools public school here as well which is very confusing <laughs> yeah um so these are so important in the reproduction of the elite in this country um now I, and i think when you look at it what you see is the going to one of these schools is not actually about providing you with a better education it's about of putting you into a system of class segregation um you know and we can see this in the statistics of what happens when countries abolish their private schools so a, a quite a hackneyed example but i'm going to repeat it here is what happened in finland 
in the 1970s. So Finland uh, abolished its pri private schools. And, you know, there's there's always an argument here to say that what you're going to be doing is you're going to be leveling down. You know, you're going to be getting rid of the best education. Um, but actually, what you saw in Finland is much rather than making the very rich kids uh, less well educated, what you saw is just a huge uh, improvement in the education of everybody that didn't go to private school. And Finland now has one of the best uh, school systems in the world. Mm. So I think that's a really important point to make when we say what, how does education reproduce class? You know, it's yeah. about class segregation, not actually about a better system. Yeah. yeah. And I think you can yeah. see this in, in some of the, the habits and um, foibles of some of the more famous um, public schools in, in, in this country. But to move on to, to, you know, another thing, which I think perhaps is even becoming more, um more salient with with regard to class and this is housing i think mm -hmm. it comes through quite clearly in the book the experiences of housing are closely tied to class perhaps particularly so for students and for young people um and so maybe the question here is whether this experience of low quality housing of paying a lot of your wage in in rent which i think many of our listeners will sympathize with um whether this necessarily leads to a class perspective as opposed to a generational one so one thing mm. we've seen quite clearly in British politics and elsewhere is an age split. So there are a number of different reasons for this, but one that seems quite plausible is that younger people are more likely to be renters. Um, and so are seeing themselves as politically opposed to homeowning boomers. They're, you know, their their parents' generation, their landlords, maybe things like this. So this conflict can become generational rather than class based. Um, so do you think that the class basis of this conflict over housing is necessarily going to win out over the generational terms in which it is often um, often experienced, played out and presented? Mm. I think the while, you know, in a way, the story of housing in the UK, while it's led to this generational inequality, it's also so deeply tied to class. Um, and to again, what happened in the 1980s as well, you know, so one of the big, big ways in which housing has been commodified in this country is uh, through the, the, the selling off of our council housing system of our state housing system. Um, you know, I think it's considered to be one of the biggest privatizations in the UK. Um, millions and millions of uh, council houses uh, were sold off to their tenants and and basically in this attempt to turn the country into a property owning democracy. And why was this done? You know, this was very much part of the idea of buying people into the um, into the idea, you know, basically allowing people uh, to be, you know, most of the country, we, we ended up, I think, at its peak of roughly around uh, 70, uh, nearly 70% home ownership rates, you know, basically saying to these people, your interests are now tied in the forces that lead to asset price inflation, you know, because your wealth is tied up with these things. And and clearly that was an attempt to, to try and turn much of the country into, um, you know, into people who would effectively want to support capital markets and the financialization of the economy. Uh, and what we're seeing is that a project that's always built on borrowed time because it do, it can't last forever. You know, asset price inflation cannot fundamentally go on um, forever, as we saw with the financial crisis and the huge impact that had across the world. And as we're seeing now with the massive, you know, with the the 
decline in home ownership rates that we're seeing across the country. Um, so while I think you're right to say that we can't simply point at people and say, you have a house and you don't have a house, therefore, you know, you're working class and you're middle class. Um, I think, you know, class is, is, is m more complicated than that in a sense. I think the story of housing is very much in intimately tied to a, to a wider class kind of politics about how our economy is shaped. Um, and I think, mm. you know, there is, I guess like there's, there's, um, well, I think particularly with this crisis, what we're seeing is housing. I mean, okay. Even within these categories, do you know what I mean? There's huge inequalities yeah. and, what we're seeing in this crisis, for example, is that one of the key ways in which the virus is spreading, we think, is um, largely in areas of the city that are kind of overcrowded. So, in, right. you know, there was some research that was done that showed that um, the most overcrowded areas in the country, I think the top five most overcrowded areas in the UK had something like 70% more coronavirus cases than the least crowded. And yeah. So, you know, there's there's a huge um, public health question there. Yeah, no, I guess the the conflict over over urban space um, as well, you know, all of these things get get kind of grouped together at least in in the british obsession with house prices and um mm. the the increasing price of an asset which which some people uh, do own so i guess maybe to sort of broaden out the discussion um a little bit in in your book as well as chapters on work money culture environment housing the authorities and solidarity you also have chapters on uh, gender and race and i mm. think you know we could put it this way that the left often has a lot of trouble or it's very contested the relationships between gender, race, and class. So, what 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 perspective do you adopt? Yeah. So, well, why don't we start with race? Um, I think just because I mean, obviously, what's happening across the world today as well, um, which maybe we can kind of come on to talk to. I think the most important thing to say is that you know, race and class they have a shared history. And you can't understand one without the other. And I'm, I'm going to talk, I guess, a little bit from both a British and an American perspective. But there's so many different ways in which we can relate to this. Uh, so, you know, the the theorist William uh, Du Bois said, you know, what is whiteness? What it, Because when we talk about race, we're not just talking about, um, you know, black or Asian or brown. We're talking about white as well. And, you know, what is whiteness? He said, whiteness is the ownership of the earth forever and ever. Mm. And it's an interesting definition because actually when you look at, you know, who owns private property, who owns the earth today, a recent study showed that of the most powerful financial organizations in the world, the people that ran and owned them, 84% of them were white. And, you know, this is in a, in a world system where more than half of the world's population, something like 4.3 billion people, earn less than $5 a day. And, and these people are almost entirely black and brown people. 
And there's nothing unnatural or inevitable about this. You know, there's nothing natural or inevitable about the fact that um, we've ended up with this huge racialized class-based distinction down the middle of the world. Mm. Um, It's to do with the history of slavery, colonialism, exploitation and, and looting. And I guess the the origin story of where this came from has been written a lot by many different, um, you know, uh, black, brown and white scholars. I, I, in the book, I take a lot from Acid Hyder's Mistaken Identity and work by Satnam Verdi, which mm. says that whiteness was really created in the tobacco fields of Georgia. Uh, sorry, the tobacco fields of Virginia um, in the early uh British colonial expansion into the US as a way of really of enforcing power and dividing a lot of the 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 workers who came there actually at the time as indentured servants rather than as slaves from uh, from Africa and also from Europe and basically after a rebellion um, the British colonial elites and had to fled fled back to London and 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 after came back realized that they couldn't just kind of put down the population with with force. They also needed to create some kind of legal distinctions that basically separated out the Europeans as white people who could, and what was whiteness? It was effectively to own, um, to own land and what, and, and to, to, to own in the end, uh, slaves. Mm. So really this kind of idea of ownership, which is fundamental to any class analysis, uh, or any Marxist class analysis is deeply tied, I think with the history of, racism but i don't think that's can i just jump in sorry yeah of course yeah i mean i i mean obviously that history is uncontestable um but i think today you often see a a notion a popularly held notion that almost inverts these relationships not that race uh, and racism was a product of class society and a means of domination but the other way around that somehow race is an essential category that always exists um, and that class is just one inflection of it or indeed maybe just that race is one division that exists in society and that there's racial inequalities and that there's class inequalities and they're just inequalities like any other or rather they're comparable inequalities and that I think misunderstands uh, any kind of materialist interpretation of, of what class is fundamentally that it's a relationship that structures all these other ones so I mean how do you position yourself with regard to that I mean isn't there also a risk in talking up kind of the idea of whiteness and treating it as a kind of almost trans-historical category, something that structures everything else um, and and that you end up with a kind of idealist understanding of of how things work. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that, you know, when I say this history, you know, this isn't, this is the history, I say this history because I think that history is still shaped, it still massively shapes the institutions that exist today. Um, and so I don't think that there's a, you know, there's still a kind of material basis to what's going on here. I mean, I guess when, I mean, there's a couple of kind of qualifiers. I'm not saying in any sense that class kind of comes before, you know, in a way, I'm not saying that like everything has to be class reductionist and, um, I mean by class reductionist actually because I, I see that bandied about a bit and I'm, I'm, I'm personally not even sure what it means I guess what I mean is like okay maybe more from a political organizing perspective in a way but to just be like 
whenever you see a social problem you have to be like this has to in the end come back down to class you know like i don't think class can Does, necessarily do everything doesn't it i mean in the sense that like i mean i think in the sense that there are clearly systems of inequality that aren't like the you you know there's important ways of talking about these systems of inequalities without necessarily having to always like link it back to a, a class analysis i think yeah i mean i i guess what i'm i'm not saying that you know the the i mean maybe let's think about it as an example you know like what like let's think about this as an example rather than theoretically like what's happening now, now in the us let's say um with the debates around policing you know there could be a debate around you know what happened after the um ferguson demonstrations in 2015 was a lot of the response was like okay this is clearly like the police are racist because they're white and what we therefore need to do is make a police force that's more embedded in communities and um you know, more embedded in communities, a police force that more is like representative and diverse, and this is going to get rid of the problem. And clearly it, it doesn't get rid of the problem. You know, you, you can have, um, you know, you can have uh, police officers who are, in fact, I think the studies show that even if a police force is uh, more diverse or, or represents the community more, in no way does that relate to the ways in which that police force polices the community or right. relates to how yeah. much the police kill you know kill people in that community but, but i mean i and guess actually I, in the book sorry yeah, sorry to yeah, interrupt. Yeah. No, i mean i guess that exactly points out that it's fundamentally a class relationship behind it that it's about class power uh, that determines what policing is about and that it's not just yeah. the, the the tone of someone's skin and how much pigment they might have that determines them being oppressive i.e that it's not something that emanates from any sort of personal essence or racial essence but is about fundamentally the way that our society is structured yeah Okay, yeah, okay. In that sense, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I think what I meant more is that, like, it you can't then just, you know, you there also needs to be, like, an analysis of why, like, race becomes the thing in which this is done. Like, you can't mm. just instantly kind of start talking about class without talking about race. But I agree with you in that sense, yeah. Yeah, mm. maybe I, I was getting slightly confused there. But, yeah, um, Ben, maybe just to, to draw out this, this point that you, you kind of mentioned the... Uh, um, class power and I think one of the interesting claims that you make in the book is you, you say sure the institutional power of the working class is diminished but arguably this shows classes become more important not less um, and I think this is you know this links to what we were talking about before around class being an outdated concept and how as in some ways society has become more class structured it's become um, I don't know, less experienced or less understood in terms of class, which I think is a really important paradox for us all to kind of grapple with, or maybe it's explicable. Um, but yeah, I guess the, the, the question here is, is why, why has this happened? Um, so, you know, what, what do you think it is um, that explains this idea that you can have the working class, which is less institutionally powerful, but class being a more important structurating principle of society? I think, yeah. So, I mean, what I mean by that is the, the, the idea that class kind of no longer exists 
is used as a tool by the capitalist class to undermine the collective power of people. You know, mm-hmm. ideology is 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 so important for class inequality. You know, justifying why the people who are at the top are there becomes the kind of vital, uh, you know, the vital narratives that we see repeated throughout society. And so in the book, I talk about how, you know, in a way, like two examples, I think, of uh, maybe two kind of cultural references that can help us kind of see this a little bit more. On the one hand, what you've seen is that over the period of neoliberalism, the idea that like to be successful meant to be kind of organizing around your class has been replaced by the idea of to be successful, you have to be like a competitive individual. And mm-hmm. you mentioned New Labour earlier, like the kind mm-hmm. of high noon of New Labour. Uh, this film came out called Billy Elliot, which I don't know if people um, will have heard of. It's, it's a good film. I'd really recommend reading it. Uh, reading it. I'd really recommend um, watching it. And in Billy Elliot, it's actually set around the miners' strike. And Billy Elliot is a young boy. His dad's a miner, and he wants to go and be a ta- like a ballet dancer. Um, and over the course of the film, you see the miners' strike happening. You see them lose the strike. And Billy actually end up, ends up, I'll, I'll give it away as a spoiler alert, he ends up going down to London and winning uh, a place at the Royal Ballet School or something. And the kind of the moral of this film, even though it's a, it's kind of seen in Britain as a kind of very good representation of working class life in lots of ways, like quite a, a wholesome representation of working class life. I think actually in a way, the, the message of the film is, you know, if you collectively organise with your community, then you're going to lose when if you try and become a talented ballet dancer through kind of the most, one of the most competitive arenas, ballet, you'll, you'll succeed. And this is, I think the central mm. argument and ideology of neoliberalism. Um, yeah. yeah, I, I yeah. think, I think it, it, it it's a, I think it's a particularly well chosen um, illustration that you give right at the start, start of the book where it just shows how the social mobility um the language of social mobility really and and to a certain extent meritocracy came to displace notions of class and this mm. idea of a structure of a collective experience was individualized and the, the factors for success and failure likewise um individualized as well um but i think phil had a had a um another another question no, uh, actually it was here. it was it was me uh, unless phil does have oh, something oh. to say um no you go first we're okay. being we're being very polite and, yeah. and, and <laughs> British in this episode. You, after no, you, you, after, after sorry, you. Yeah. I apologise for existing. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, taking up the Billy Elliot uh, example, actually, you know, which is a total scab film. It justifies scabbing. Um, no, but the uh, in seriousness, um, I think there's there is an issue that you know pointing to. I mean, in trying to bring class back in and pointing to all the different forms of oppression and and how people are victimized effectively through through the class relation uh that you end up losing sight of of the other side of things that you know of of actual you know agency because as the billy elliott example you know points out that you know people can effectively try to escape from class um through individual solutions rather than seeking social solutions so trying to escape from their class rather than try to rise up with their class and indeed maybe even abolish class society um that people that i guess pointing out look you are victimized in your class people people's response could just be individualized 
um, that it could just be, I'm going to try to escape, I'm going to take care of me and mine, um, and that I'm not interested in all this class discourse. And therefore, maybe that maybe the argument that I'm trying to make is that simply pointing out how uh, unequal things are, how disfavored working class people are, might not actually be very mobilizing. Um, that you need to actually point to how people might exercise their agency, how you know class power might be actually built and achieved. Um, it's actually maybe more important than just pointing out inequality. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a really important point. And in a way, I think... But I, I think what class has that maybe a discourse around inequality doesn't have is this idea that class isn't just about describing the inequalities that shape our world. Class is also a, um, you know, it's, it's, it's also a category in which people can organize around to try and build a better world for themselves. And I think that that is that side of the story, I guess, that is hard, I think, to to at least in a kind of national politic kind of way, can be sometimes hard to really resonate to win electoral majorities off. You know, th at least this is um, what some people think, I guess. I mean, well, for example, let's let's like, you know, what we had in the Labour Party in this country is clearly Corbyn's project was about trying to articulate that message around class you know it was this idea of like we are many they are few it was about recounting the histories of the successes of the trade union movement about the fact that it gave us um shorter working times it gave us the weekend it gave us sick pay holiday pay all of these things and some of these things that i go to in the book um but um so you know it, they they really tried to push that narrative and i think because we haven't discussed class for so long or because class has been such a kind of demonized concept as you say you know class has been this idea that in, at least in british society a lot of it you know any discussion a public discussion of class has been um really to just point at working class people and and to to kind of try and demonize them and to say that they're vulgar you know a lot mm. of the um the ways in which we've you know a lot of the tv programs for example that are produced do this kind of thing so for a lot of time you know owen jones writes about this with the kind of demonization of the working class you know class was, was a ca category that people don't want to talk about yeah so i think it's really yeah. hard to fight back against that maybe yeah, this I, is the beginning of something yeah yeah just just to jump in there because i was about to ask something on on this um book of owen jones's chavs and in fact that word so this might be um, a deep cut for for people familiar with British um, culture, but you know there used to be a lot of discussion of chavs of skivers um, as well. What do you think that has? What do you think that has morphed into today? I mean, because it seems to me like there is still a an aesthetic dislike on the part of of um, some some members of the commentariat or the ruling class or liberal elite or however you want to frame it but there's a there's a, a real antipathy towards um towards working class but i don't think it's expressed in exactly the same way as it was maybe 10 years ago that language of chav seems to me to have dropped out i mean what what's your take on this do you think it's been replaced by an, another way of talking about working class people i think i i've i was having a debate actually with um with my friend about this because i was trying to say the, I was I was putting out the argument: Was it the Corbyn project in a way that really took the sting out of 
that narrative you know was it this this big shift in it was it the labor party actually saying we're going to talk about class because ed Miliband, who was the previous leader before corbyn never mentioned class in any one of his speeches you know it was just considered to be a tabooed topic don't talk about it and is it the fact that you do have on the national stage somebody really making a cultural interjection but then i thought actually corbyn's cultural impact i don't think is was particularly you know, I don't, I can't really point to like where he made a really important cultural interjection. I think in a way you could argue Owen Jones's book was one of the things that actually made a much bigger cultural interjection into that discourse and actually just made it um, very inappropriate to use that terms within, you know, the people that were reading his book, which was one of the biggest bestsellers at the time. So, you know, I think that's the theory of why it's changed maybe, like you could actually point it down a little bit to 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 that intervention but i think it's mm. it's going to be um i think you know not that on its own and i think what you what you start to see maybe is that this class narrative has morphed into the right also adopting class and so maybe this is a pessimistic take but with the you know with the conservative party now claiming you know winning back seats winning seats from labor that obviously um have never been conservative in in uh decades and now claiming to represent the kind of traditional authentic working class um in a way it's just not it's not acceptable anymore within that strategy for them to be so clearly uh treating class as a kind of vulgar concept so Ben, I've got this um, th- this theory that what has yeah. happened with the way that the right now talks about class, um, of course, in a very specific sort of way, often in a very kind of ethnicized way and whatever, um, you know, the, the construction of the kind of ridiculous construction of white working class as if that's an actual mm. thing um, I, is a product precisely of the left talking about uh, gender and ethnicity and race the whole time. Um, because it does, because the left talks about those things, it leaves class as a sort of as as the kind of missing element, right? That you've mm. you've you've taken everything else out, and you've talked about all these other forms of oppression. Therefore, it leaves people who don't fit into one of those identity boxes, um, either because they are white or because they don't choose to identify necessarily in their consciousness as um, you know immigrant or um, you know trans or as black or whatever. Um, that it leaves kind of white people, white working class people thinking, well, no one's speaking up for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that leaves that leaves a, a gaping opening for the right to, to swoop right in and go, yes, I'm going to speak for you and say that, you know, cl- that the real working class are these white people and that they're maybe even just male or whatever. Um, so I think, I don't know, maybe I wanted to li- explore that dynamic a little bit. Um, that for me, I think is the, the most dangerous aspect of all this, of all the identity chat, that it leaves the door open for the right to speak for an indigenous working class and cleave off sections of the working class from from the mass of it. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I think that in a way, I, I, w- I don't want to in any sense undermine the victories that have been won through a lot of that discourse, you know, for people who have been marginalized from at least from the organized labor movement in this country um so it's it's not i I guess a kind of question of 
I mean, my one my one problem maybe with this theory is the fact that this isn't necessarily a new phenomenon. You know, the right have always used this racialized understanding of a kind of authentic working class to try and win power within, particularly within the UK. I mean, we can look at that from the history of uh, slavery and the, uh, as I said earlier, but also we can look at that in the 20th century history in the UK um, with the fact that you had people like Enoch Powell in the 60s framing immigration as a national crisis in very much the same way that somebody like Nigel Farage would do um, in 2016, you know, this idea that there was a kind of liberal elite who were, um, you know, a liberal elite who were kind of conspiring um, to care more about issues like, you know, particularly, I guess, race, rather than uh, caring about a kind of authentic, ordinary British working class. And in a sense, you know, this the the whole Enoch Power Rivers of Buds Blood stuff. It had a huge impact at the time. You know, it had an impact on the Labour Party, who were uh, in power at the time, who then implemented some of the most aggressive and draconian immigration acts that the country has seen, and that really um, has has paved the way, I guess, for the immigration laws that exist now. And so, I don't know if that. You know, and then it also led to a lot of the race battles that went on in the 1970s. So I guess I don't think it's a new thing that the right have done this or that the a new thing that the right have been able to win big legislative changes and being able to change people's attitudes um, around this kind of stuff. I, I like, do, 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 do you kind of get what I mean about that? And what sense change people's attitudes? Um... I mean, I guess like, okay, the difference between this this example from the 70s and today is that, you know, what we're seeing now across the world seems to be a resurgence in right-wing movements using um, a, a, a kind of a, a, an explicit class-based narrative to win power that maybe wasn't the case in the 1960s. And maybe that that the difference there is the fact that you know, the reason why the left isn't winning is because they have opened up their, uh, you know, they they have been kind of outflanked in that way because they yeah. haven't yeah. had a class narrative. I think there is there is definitely an element of truth of that. I just think it's important to also point to the fact that these are, have a much deeper, long-seated histories to them that we need to to be careful to say that, like, it's not just this you know in a way the left's transition to talking about this stuff as well has maybe created the grounds to having a much more multi-ethnic um working class movement as well you know because in the 1970s you had people like the london dockers for example supporting people like enoch powell and the movement was quite racialized and i talk in the book about the example of grumwick um which was a strike that happened towards the end of the 70s that was predominantly done by um by working class immigrant women uh, they the, the media dubbed them the, sh- the strikers in saris and uh they went on strike for over two years and it was it's kind of a really important watershed moment in british working class history because at the beginning of the strike the whole trade union movement came out to support them and it looked like they were going to win but then because of reactionary and racist racist attitudes within the movement they they pulled their support 
And despite the strike then going on for another two years, uh, you know, defeat was really, sorry, victory was really kind of snatched from the, the, the jaws of, sorry, defeat was snatched from the jaws of victory, you know, and, and actually you have people like Dennis Skinner, who was a, a very established Labour MP until he was um, unfortunately not elected again in 2019. Uh, he said, you know, this was really, this paved the way for the battles of the 1980s. So I think my point there is to say, you know, the working class movement in this country has a, has a very, it does have a, some aspects of it does have a tainted history that I think maybe what you've seen now with um, some of the more, you know, some of the movements of the left over the last few decades is that hopefully we, we won't go back to that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it, in some ways, uh, you know, the moment now is disappointing because obviously, very obviously, there's a, a lower degree of class consciousness than there was in the 1980s. Mm. But on the other hand, uh, racism is a lot less of a factor in Britain at, at any rate. Um, mm. You know, just objectively, the, just if you look at the number of intermarriages and, and things like that, um, racism is just not a major factor. And so the working class isn't divided in that way. Um, and the elites aren't able to divide the working class through racism in the way that they once were. Um, so with that in mind, uh, maybe a last final question here. Mm-hmm. Uh, for you, what, what would a class-based political movement look like and, and how would it differ from where we are at the moment? I think bearing in mind that I think Corbynism failed, um, that whole, you know, it did seem promising maybe for a brief moment, but um, I think looking back on it, we can say it's failed. So kind of what next? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's many different ways in which class power can articulate itself. I mean, I'd, I'd say this kind of insurrectionary protest in the US is is definitely part of a class-based movement. Um, but I think what is really important is that you do need rank and file organizing. You know, you do need to be building working class power from the ground up in institutions, you know, in workplaces, in communities. But I think particularly in workplaces, you know, one of the, the problems and I think the failure from trying to do what, you know, from Corbynism, was, you know, you can't just necessarily implement class politics from the top down. Um, and Corbynism was, a you know, a, a, in a way, a, a historical, a, a, a kind of, in in that in the sense of him being leader at that time, it was clearly like a bit of a historical fluke for him to get on the ticket at the time that the rule changes had happened. And so I think, you know, what we really need to be thinking and doing now is building up rank and file organising within our workplaces um you know at the end of the day the power for the majority for working class people will come from their ability to walk off the job and win demands you know collective refusal to work still i think remains the the striking Mm. power of the working class and it scares the shit out of the elites like Mm. it, it, it you know whenever you see it happening like and i think in a way the collective refusal to work or collective power you're seeing in the streets of the UK uh, of the, the US now but but what, what you're seeing in the UK I think a little bit is this slight resurgence of maybe the importance of the trade union movement within mm. the COVID crisis you know the economist had an article the other day that said unions are back and I think like I mean not that we should necessarily listen to the economist but like it's interesting when the enemy kind of, you know, say things that you like, it's good to repeat back. And I think what you see here is that like with the teaching 
union in the UK. I don't know how much you guys are familiar with it. Um, they they basically collectively decided that it wasn't safe for schools to go back by the 1st of June. And the reaction that this kind of instilled in the British elite was, you know, absolutely hysterical because really it represented a clear moment where working class power could like hugely damage the government's uh, strategy and reputation. And so they threw everything at the teachers. You know, they started off by saying that people were kind of let lazy feckless addicted to the state benefits that they were giving them then they kind of tried this hero narrative by being like you know let our teachers be heroes the unions are getting in the way of teachers trying to get the country back to work and all of this kind of stuff um so i think if you know at the end of the day while i mean what would happen now in the u.s if you did have huge trade union membership and mm. people would completely walk out of the job and yeah. would shut down the economy to, you know, yeah. this is the kind of thing that forces demands on governments to actually, to actually do something. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a, a great note to finish on a slightly optimistic note on the possibility of, um, of class power, of working class power. So yeah, Ben, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. Very interesting to talk to Ben there. Uh, I think one issue that we could didn't really delve into and we could do a little bit more here, maybe we should just say a few words on it and uh, and then come back to it on a whole other episode. But it's a question of vulnerability, I guess, um, and, and victimhood. Because I think a lot of the discussion about class tends to focus on class as, as an objective category, as something which happens to people um, and that people are victim victimized by. And I don't know, that maybe that doesn't capture what we really should be focusing on. Mm, I'd say it kind of comes from the opposite direction, almost. Uh, as Ben said, the the history of class not being a way that people see the world has almost led it to be a subjective category. So it's a um, it's something which is, if you're working class, it must be because of some defect, some uh, insufficiency um, in your in your your being. Um, and this is the kind of neoliberal social mobility um, model. So you kind of do have this this tying together of working class with a lack of power, a lack of value, a lack of kind of um, of positive things. So that maybe is one of the sources of this tie between working class and, and vulnerability, which obviously is is false and needs to be politically challenged. I suppose um, I would tend to agree. I mean, many issues combine, I think, in the way in which class is mangled in contemporary political and economic discussion. I think on the left, it's generally understood as an issue of inequality and as something which is, um, and a lot of it also, I have to say, I think is um, uh, various kind of wings of the down, downwardly mobile middle classes kind of um, struggling to maintain their position or um, to kind of clamber their way back up, um, you know, back up kind of declining property prices and so on. So. It's all if, because I don't think it's not really as if labor, you know, that you have a powerful organized labor movement that has imprinted the interests of producers onto political discussion, onto the way in which we understand society and the way in which society is organized. So I think that always has to be maintained. Whatever whatever we are talking about when we talk about class, it doesn't grow out of 
a position of organized labor strength. And Ben conceded that in the discussion as well when he spoke about the, um, you know, the general, the weakness of the labor movement at this particular point. So yeah. I think that always has to be borne in mind in terms of the content of what we're talking about in sociological, economic, political terms is very different from the way in which it, the you know, the discourse is framed. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, that's that's it, isn't it? The way we're rediscovering maybe the sociological, the economic aspects of class, but the political aspect without that organised labour force is, is necessarily going to be a bit more contested and fractured and, and difficult to, to see clearly. But obviously, you know, that's what, that's what politics is about or could be about in you know in the next few years hopefully all right very good uh we should maybe leave it there um we'll be back with more on this of course but that's it for now catch you later bye-bye sorry that last that's what politics is about (laughs) there was something good and then i just kept talking with a trite like and hopefully, with a bit of luck, we'll get there. <laughs> stop talking! Why don't you just stop talking on the good thing about the political idea of class? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was lame, George. That was lame.